0: And it really inspired me to do 20 years of upper schooling. So, you know, when I got my bachelor's in philosophy, minors in physics and psychology, then the master's in consciousness and transformative studies, and then the doctor's in philosophy, cosmology, consciousness. And I did my dissertation work on psilocybin. So I ended up having to read about 75 books just on psychedelics, along with the entire history of our evolution of consciousness. And while I was doing all the academic work, I went to several different psychedelic psychotherapy trainings. I did years studying within the Mazatec mushroom tradition from which we learned about psilocybin mushrooms. For a couple of years, assisted the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy training at CIS, the first above-ground psychedelic psychotherapy training.
1: Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest today, Jahan he is the author of The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, the Transformation of Consciousness, and Evolution on the Planet, and Integral Approach. So we're going to talk about his work and knowledge of psilocybin and uh, whatever else comes up. So, thanks so much for coming. Thank you so much, Richard. It's an honor to be here with you. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background. How did you get into working with psilocybin? Yeah. I mean, psilocybin
0: changed my life at the age of 18. I'm 39 now. And it really inspired me to do 20 years of upper schooling. So, you know, when I got my bachelor's in philosophy, minors in physics and psychology, then the master's in consciousness and transformative studies, and then the doctor's in philosophy, cosmology consciousness. And I did my dissertation work on psilocybin. So I ended up having to read about 75 books just on psychedelics, along with the entire history of our evolution of consciousness. And while I was doing all the academic work, I went to several different psychedelic psychotherapy trainings. I did years studying within the Mazatec mushroom tradition. From which we learned about psilocybin mushrooms for a couple of years. Assisted the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy training at CIS, the first above ground psychedelic psychotherapy training. Now I work at Ottman Retreats doing legal psilocybin ceremonies. Now I work at Synthesis reviewing their content for the psychedelic guide training and mentored at the School of Consciousness Medicine. So it's been pretty full on now in this world of psychedelics for many years.
2: Yeah, very interesting. So the assisted sessions, what are they used for? People that are I've seen, I guess, on documentaries people that are. Having existential crises, you know they're dying of cancer or um, they have intractable depression or things like that what are some of the therapies you see the useful for
0: you know it's such a big answer but the honest question is almost everything what we've seen is it creates a state of wholeness and seals the sense of like fracturedness we have with ourselves or relationships with the world then in terms of the neuroscience it creates a hyper connected brain state so any parts of our brains that become no longer communicating with one another So this has been helpful for 80% of people with treatment-resistant depression. That means the population that nothing else has worked. They've been in therapy for 20 years, tried all the medications, nothing's worked. For 80% of them, it's helpful. I think it's about helpful for 90% of all people. It's been really helpful with near-end-of-life anxiety. People diagnosed with a terminal illness that they have months or a couple years to live, and they're paralyzed in fear. They're able to overcome their fear and enjoy the rest of their life. and Let go of the fear of death with the help of psilocybin. It's about 80% successful for nicotine addiction, you know, which is one of the hardest addictions. 80% successful for alcoholism. It's helped OCD. And overall, it seems to make people, I was an atheist before psilocybin, kind of more spiritual. And I'm grounding spirituality here in a sense of we're all deeply interconnected. And as we come to realize that, a lot of the other fears kind of go away and our hearts open more and we tend to live more meaningful lives.
2: Yeah. You You said you're an atheist. What? You know if there's too personal it's okay but did you have a particular trip where you had a, a religious experience like what happened
0: that's it and it was completely unexpected i was suicidal depressed and an atheist by the time of 15 and in a lot of existential inquiry when you're full of pain you're like why the fuck do i exist why are we here as humans what how did we get here where are we going and, and this kind of thinking consumed my thoughts for years and then i had this boundary dissolving experience at 18 kind of Felt eternal, merged with the universe, and a voice arose in my consciousness. And I was like, Is this God? It said, Yes. I wrote down crying. And it said, Love's the most important thing on the planet, followed by learning. And if you keep these two qualities in that order, you won't worry about the complexity of anything else in life. And it changed everything. Just that 90 minutes changed my life. It's still, I've had hundreds of journeys, and it's still the most important one that I think about daily uh, because I was able to see not only my depression change fast, but my change of my sense of identity. And the way I see a world, and I was just fueled with this kind of motivation and passion for learning that's now gone on for twenty years. So, it's one of those. So, studies have shown now sixty five percent of people in the right set and setting have a mystical experience, and we've been
2: studying this since the sixties. What the first? to ask you that. Yeah, yeah you said sixty five percent, if it's done right. That's, that's huge.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're talking about. These states that were so elusive for most of human history that might happen for grace or after decades of meditation. Now, with the right dose, with the right kind of person and the right kind of situation, 65 of people have this huge breakthrough that even after 20 years of follow-up, people say is the one one of the top three most important experiences of their entire lives. So I've been grateful yeah. to be able to do this work illegally. And you're there sometimes in front of people noticing that they're having the most important experience that they'll ever have.
2: Well, I tried it once. 24 years ago it wasn't like in a clinic or anything we just had a, a friend and I guess looking back on it now we had quite a lot we had like uh, three and a half grams each it was pretty intense but I do remember a lot of elements of the experience it was weird I, I remember at one point I was laying down and all of a sudden I felt like I was at this party and everyone that I cared about was there it was the mm-hmm. best party I'd ever been to in my life yeah and I just started moving to the music and I was so happy and i I think I probably started crying. I was just so happy everyone was there. And it was just, it was really intense. I didn't have a, you know, like a, a truly spiritual experience, but it was a pretty intense experience I never forgot.
0: I mean, that is very beautiful. It's not so far... It's just the spiritual part is deepening that. The sense of connected to everything, really happy. This is such a beautiful, kind of perfect moment. And you can see why it helps depression, right? People that have been stuck in a negative emotion and kind of frame of mind and feel alone for so long, for decades, and all of a sudden they have an experience like that at a party. It boosts their mood and gives them a new state of reference. What's possible? So I'm curious, given that this was so beautiful this evening for you, though intense, why did you ever do it again?
2: Oh, because it was also scary. I was with my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now wife, and totally relaxed about it i was like freaking out and she's like i'm gonna go to sleep and i said no please but i begged her not to sleep and she said come lay your head on my chest and i did and her heart was so loud in my ear i was like you know and it it, and then she did fall asleep and i was like oh no it it just was so intense i thought i would never come out of it so i had to tell myself tomorrow you're gonna wake up it'll be sunny you'll be hungry you'll go get food like really, 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 really basic things. So I think that's why that you know I wasn't with someone that helped guide me through it and everything, and so it was very scary. I mean,
0: that's the truth. I mean, they, it can be very, very intense, especially once you go three grams, four grams, five grams, and up. The clinical studies use about normally four and a half grams, and so it's best there to have a guide or a therapist that knows the territory, that can reassure you, that can help you process all the stuff, and so. The recreational setting at a party can be very beautiful and also highly disorienting. Um, I'm glad you had your wife with you. It seems you felt even closer to her, even though once she fell asleep, it felt you kind of felt a little bit more alone. And part of the beauty it only yeah. lasts four hours. Yeah. So so it, you do eventually come back, even though it can feel like forever.
2: Yeah, when I started coming down and I felt it, then I was like, oh, thank God.
0: This <laughs> is I know, right?
2: But it was just, uh, it was really, I was on the very edge of reality, it felt like. So it was scary. I don't like to... Yeah, you know, some people really don't like to be out of control, and you know, I, I see some of the sessions that people do with and They'll put on like an eye mask and lay there, and I wouldn't want to do that at all. I would, <laughs> if possible, I would rather sit there with a practitioner or two and talk to them. I'd probably talk them to death, but I wouldn't want to lay there with like like zoning out like that with a mask. Yeah, so a lot of
0: times at the beginning, when people are starting, they do have to keep talking and to stay connected to feel safe. What I found maybe about after a couple of hours of talking, and it depends if you're a kind of person that helps people feel comfortable, safe, and relaxed, they're able to let go. And what I found it can be more therapeutic with the blindfold on. So I'm about to go to Jamaica next week to do this work legally over there, and we do it to about twelve people at a time and we do encourage that method. And that's partly because people tend to come for high level trauma. You're talking about lots of PTSD, suicidal depression, they've been raped. And so they're suffering so much that we want to get them inside to do the deep work and the deep healing. So it, it tends to be more effective when the focus is internal. That being said, we kind of have to create the space so that the person feels really safe to go inside.
2: That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Interesting. I know the sessions are private, but do you ask the people, and the people are done with their session, do they want to go back and see themselves or hear things they said, or do they remember enough and it's a private experience for them, you just... So-
0: Yeah. I mean, it's quite a procedure, really. I mean, we do prep sessions like with Jamaica before they head out. We do a lot of prepping before the journey. We get all their psychological material, like doing regular therapy all the way up to the actual journey. Journey is about six to seven hours. And then we do a lot of like therapy afterwards, including following up once they get back. So it's fairly comprehensive in that way. And we are taking notes during the journey. Sometimes people can forget part of their journey. That doesn't mean the impact still isn't taking place. Uh, that being said, we do take notes, so when we remind them, it tends to jog their memory and pull it all back for them.
2: Um, Any, yeah, you know, any experiences without saying names or anything, but any amazing experiences that you've observed or heard anecdotally from the person in front of you what they've experienced?
0: You know, I've seen hundreds of journeys, and so I, I can't even begin to tell you how incredible it's been. A couple come to mind right away. One person had been drinking every day for five years and she came in and dealt with the deepest child like really deep childhood trauma and agony that she wasn't aware of so she was in excruciating pain for six hours and you're there with them completely empathically the whole time moving through this deep pain and as soon as it was over you know she completely stopped drinking and i've been following up with her for years now she's completely stopped drinking you know and her life has gotten tremendously better Another one that really stands out, and there's so many really gems to talk about, but the person came because his wife had died of leukemia two years ago. And so he was in deep mourning still, and it was hard for him to move on and be more present in another relationship. And he had the experience of talking to his wife for five or six hours. And you can even just tell how meaningful that was That this person that you lost, that you let go of, that you've been thinking about all day, every day that you haven't had a chance to feel their presence or contact. And all of a sudden you get to feel like they're there with you for six hours. Wow, he was able to drop it, really move forward. again, I've been able to follow up with him for years. Um, and the impact has been lasting. And the hardest part really about cool. this job, it is incredible. The hardest part of this job is navigating expectations because some of these outcomes are so extraordinary. And then, you know, there's a small percentage of time where nothing happens. So I'm just saying that for the viewer, like we're, we're really sharing the highlights. And I said, it's, it's really successful about 80% of people, but there's about, you know, 10 to 20% of the time where nothing bad happens, but I'm not sure they get as much out
2: of it. Yeah. Makes sense. So you said earlier on in your bio, you spent many years even going to the PhD level in consciousness and so and things like that. What kind of things did you learn through your, you know, your academic work about it outside Mm -hmm. of the sessions? Like what, had his consciousness fold into uh psilocybin
0: i mean i got really interested as a teen on evolution from every front from the big bang till now i spent three and a half years as a physics and math major and then moved also to studying evolution in terms of all of biology but then anthropology and then the a big focus on the evolution development of, of experience itself and that's where psilocybin and the other psychedelics become so fascinating Because you're talking about something that almost instantaneously gives a sense of expanded awareness. And so the heart of my dissertation really focused on this idea put forward by Terence and Dennis McKenna, that perhaps it was psilocybin mushrooms that catalyzed the evolution of humanity. And so there's over 200 different species of psilocybin mushrooms found around the world. And the idea is very simple, that there was consciousness-expanding compounds in the environment where our ancestors evolved that expanded their consciousness, and as Paul Stamets, the great mycologist, points out, that the most common mushroom in the Africa savannah where we evolved is of the psilocybin variety. We see archaeological evidence of psilocybin use there. We know now from the neuroscience last ten years, it creates a hyperconnected brain state and stimulates neurogenesis, the growth of new nerve cells. We know it creates mystical experience. So this also describes the very emergence of religions, of myths, and then of art itself, and so. After 20 years of looking at this theory, I came across it at 19, I've been really focusing on it and all the evidence, and people can go through it on my book, really adds up and I haven't found a single contradiction. You know, I've had to defend this. The book's been out for almost a year. There's no retort. And so it's a big deal to probably see in a very logical, rational, grounded way how we became human. And I think these medicines can help us become even better humans.
2: Does anyone use psilocybin as question and answer sessions? So- What I was going to ask you is, either you or other people that have had mystical experiences, has anyone asked God that they encounter in the experience, why is there psilocybin everywhere? Or other questions that they want to ask God, for instance. Could you do that? Could you write down a number of prompts and then take the psilocybin, let's say with a guide, and then during the session at the right point, pull up the prompts and ask and just see what comes of it while you're having that experience?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, plenty of people have. I have, I've held journeys where that's a big part of what we're doing. Terrence becoming a probably part of my favorite philosopher. He's he's notorious for knowing that, for talking directly to the mushroom. So, yes, yes, that, that is a high possibility. It's not a guarantee, but there is a sense that you're in contact with a very deep kind of universal intelligence that's trying to pour wisdom into you, that cares about you, that loves you, and is trying to
2: teach you. Instead of brainstorming, it'll be shroom storming. It's made up that.
0: I love it. And, you know, there's a lot of nice since the 60s, there's a lot of evidence that points out that there's been major creative breakthroughs because of it. You know, there's a good book called What the Dormouse Says, that the entire even personal computer revolution in Silicon Valley was spurred by psychedelic use. There's three LSD research centers in Silicon Valley at the time. We know it's influenced all the movies, the music, the cultures, the ethics, the values. And so there's definitely a lot of creativity, spirituality, wisdom, and I think compassion that can evolve uh using these psychedelics
2: in the right way so um how have you decided you're using it for yourself like how has this changed your consciousness and are you still on a path towards getting somewhere what what are you using it for to it?
0: great question i mean i've had hundreds of journeys at this point and i love them deeply and i feel pretty whole i feel pretty complete i feel I found what I'm looking for. There was years of searching. I was obsessed with philosophy and inquiry, and I'm grateful to come a point that I'm settled, and a big part is just realizing this deep sense of unity, so there's no longer this sense of seeking. That being said, like, the world's still such an exploration. I crave novelty and meanness. I love learning, and I feel I'm at a point right now where I get to divert most of my energy to helping other people heal, you know, like, they've impacted me more than anything else, so... I wanted to create safe spaces and educate the public uh, about these medicines.
2: So, what needs to happen with psilocybin use, in, in your opinion? Does the method of administration need to change, or the laws just need to be clarified to allow people everywhere to do it? Or like, what, what is the? I don't want to call it an industry, but you know the the consciousness work that you do. What does the the industry need of just use?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's evolving much faster than any of us expected. You know, I've been looking at this for 20 years. In the last three years, the acceleration is, is ginormous. We have psilocybin projected to become federally legal in two years. So doctors across the U.S. will be able to prescribe it faster than we ever thought. The decriminalization movement on a local grassroots level has taken off. So in Oakland, where we live, it's decriminalized. We're probably around seven or eight different cities across the U.S. now. It's legalized now, which means people can set up storefronts and licenses in Denver and in Oregon. And so we have a huge industry emerging. When I got into this, there was only two trainings anywhere that I could see. or Now I hear about a new training every week, a new psychotherapy training. I've been in touch with USONA. I've been doing some talks with them. They're one of the lead psilocybin researchers that have been pushing towards legalization. They're one of the two large companies that are going to have uh, a big hand of insuls have been becoming legal and they're building this huge planet compound in Wisconsin and they're doing next level group ceremony setting. So I, I came in as a consultant to see what kind of, you know, how they could design the space and what kind of content they can put up there. And it, it, it's moving forward fast. So education is first and foremost there's a stigma from like the 1960s around psychedelics that came from misinformation that needs to change. The laws need to change so that people feel safe and they can actually get help and there's an infrastructure. And then people need to get trained. That's probably the biggest bottleneck is getting enough trained individuals. You know, it's such an effective form of therapy. There will probably be a psychedelic psychotherapy clinic in every city. It's that much more effective than regular talking therapy. We just need enough trained, good people to be able to hold those spaces.
2: What is the... um? What is the therapy like after someone has come down from their, their trip? You said that you do, people do talk therapy. How is it different than uh, without the psilocybin? Therapy?
0: Yeah. So again, I mean, I love talk therapy. Uh, it doesn't go as deep. You know, I still studied somatic psychotherapy for two years, Hakomi, and I've studied a variety of tantra trainings, like working directly with sexuality. And I'd say those go deeper because so much of the trauma is actually held in the body and it's unconscious. And so... Talking only goes so deep, and people can't get to the root of the stuff and help get it out of the body. The psychedelics tend to engage you at the core of your consciousness. They change our view of ourselves and of reality so fast. So, Stan Groff, one of the biggest researchers in the field, he worked in this area for 50 years. He said, Psychedelics catalyze holotropic states of consciousness, states that organically move you into wholeness and healing. So, if you give a person a good amount of psychedelics and create a safe space, The content that they need to heal, that's repressed, tends to come up by itself. And then you're there as a therapist or guide working directly with that content. And then there's a lot of follow-ups with integration to make sure people make these changes in their lives, that they can help interpret the experiences in a right way, that they can feel grounded and not alone. You know, the point being that this isn't just a peak experience. It's as beautiful that is, like not like just visiting a different city or doing some extreme sport but that you really create these these insights and embody them and change. And So people might have, regularly, health is a huge part, like what habits need to change? What's my morning routine look like? Does my diet need to change? Relationships need to be better. Am I living my sense of deep purpose? These are major things. The point is to have a good life, and I want to make sure those psychedelic experiences translate into somebody's life becoming much better.
2: Okay, so people that, are, that want to seek out uh, an experience like this, they don't want to do it themselves, they want to do it, I don't want to say properly, but with guidance so it's more likely to go well. Um, what what do they look for? Do we Google something? Is this still underground in certain places? Um, you know, what is the person that provides the ceremony called? Like, how do people find this stuff?
0: It's still underground because legality, it's decriminalized but not completely safe. And so that's why we set up this, you know, retreat in Jamaica, it's Atman retreats, A-T-M-A-O-N retreats. And because we, we wanted to create something safe, above ground, legal that people can just have. Jamaica being the only place where it's 100% legal. also work with Synthesis. They're based out of the Netherlands and they do retreats over there. It's like a gray zone, but it's been working for years. Uh, people could go to my website, psychedelicevolution.org for a lot of different resources. So one of the hardest parts for people that aren't kind of networked into this is finding a right person. That's going to change tremendously in a few years. Clinics are going to cost a lot. You know, it'll cost a lot to work in a clinic, but it'd still be possible. Accessibility is one of the hardest things right now because of legality. There are lots of practitioners, but everybody has to play it a little bit safe because people are risking themselves to help other people heal, and it's still not completely legal.
2: Yeah. Any other amazing experiences that come to mind when you when you sat with somebody? Mm-hmm. You know, things that surprised even you, you know, I experience and you that you were like,
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so otherworldly, you know, and I've seen so many people after years completely shift, sometimes half the time almost after one experience. Again, it's not a guarantee where people had been stuck in depression and suicidal for like 20 years. There's a lot of people I've seen that happen. They're about 20 years depressed and in one journey, everything shifts. And what I've seen at the core of depression is this sense deficient identity of I'm not enough. And I don't like myself. And if you're forced to be somebody you don't like, existence itself is pretty painful. And in one journey, within hours, that whole delusion can break apart. And they see that they're awesome, that they're beautiful, that they're loved, that they're safe, that they belong. And people generally don't have that point of reference in their lives. And so I've seen huge, cathartic breakthroughs within hours and they stabilize, you know, and they change. And then the more out there stuff is, Stuff outside of our paradigm is like contact with other entities, you know, stuff that I feel our scientific world still doesn't know how to make sense of with our aliens, spirits, reincarnation, visions of the future, like pretty big things. Then you come back and you're like, how in the world do I just make sense of this? This is monumental, but there's no container for this yet. So I think we have to look at indigenous traditions that have probably been using this for millennia and kind of learn from them. And there's now systematic studies being done on psychedelics and we're beginning to chart that realm because the legality had been really held back. But there's studies being now done on, for example, DMT entities. If you take DMT, you're probably going to see other intelligent beings. And that's so otherworldly. But using the scientific method, we see that that happens over and over and over. We could deduce that there might be some kind of objective reality to this experience and perhaps these these other beings.
2: Um, has anyone used this as they were dying to make the experience different or easier? Yeah.
0: Yeah, no I believe Timothy Leary. What are you know the biggest things in psychedelic history and I think Aldous Huxley did, you know, so those are a few decades ago. Um if they did since then it's been illegal so it probably hasn't been that public. But that being said, you know there's been now decades about 20 years of research of near end of life anxiety so people that are dying and within months of them dying or within a year or two they use it to overcome that fear and they're able to live more fully. So in the actual transition itself, yes, people have, even though they're not might to do a lot of work. But Timothy Lear is probably the most famous for taking LSD while he's dying.
2: No, oh, did he say anything or he, anything known about the experience?
0: I, I would look back. I think his family was there, and for those that may not know, his ashes were burnt and then sent, out, I believe, into space, like in a rocket, like so. Yeah, so I think it helped him transition because he was so familiar with that territory and. Bill Hicks, one of the best, he's somebody else that did this work as he was dying. He was a a comedian that was really huge in the 90s. And he was a really big proponent of psychedelics. And he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he had a few months left to live. And he said, one of the things I had to do before my death die was go take five dried grams with my friends in a field in, in Texas. And he has this really famous line in the skit. He says, we need a positive drug story. How about this? Today, a young man in acid realized that all matters nearly energy condensed to a slower vibration. We are all one consciousness exploring itself subjectively. There's no such thing as death. Life is but a dream. And we are the imagination of ourselves. Here's Tong with the weather. Yeah. And so there's a sense that death isn't real. And I've had that with psychedelics too, that once you die, you become interconnected in a very vibrant, living, experiential way with everything. It's like this massive celebration. It's just we we come to see this death as a mystery, and we project the worst things onto it. But it's it, it's actually like coming back into merging with light itself, and so it really eases the whole all the defense mechanisms we have around dying.
2: No, that that's pretty powerful. I mean, fear of death is uh, is incredibly strong. I felt that you know I had a thyroid cancer, so yeah, you know, which wasn't even a bad cancer compared to most of them. But I'm uh, you're really gonna hear that. Feel like you're, you're, you're gonna die. Well, thank you. And you know, when yeah, when you feel you're gonna that, it's not a pleasant thing at all. Nope.
0: So, that's, I mean, all-consuming. It's If you're in pain or in fear, it's all you can think about. And so yeah. you're really stunted. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a prison. I mean, just fear itself it can really stunt us tremendously. You mm-hmm. tends to break down.
2: I was going to ask, so we're not there yet, but when this becomes widespread, what would you imagine people should look for to know that they're likely to have a, a good experience versus someone that just maybe set up shop isn't really into it for the spiritual side, but just let's say for the money, and they're just they're not going to be a good a good person or company to to have this experience with. Like, what would you look for once this becomes more commercialized or available?
0: No, well, that's a great question. Their depth of training is huge to see how serious have they've taken this. They've done a lot of personal self work because you can't guide people to territories you've never really been. Find out their ethics and values. You know, if it's a company that's mostly focused on profit, of course we all want to make money, but. I want like, there to be a deeper sense of purpose behind it. A hard problem with the situation because if you have the resources and the money and the time, you can find you know exceptional people. But it's gonna be pretty expensive. So it looks like MDMA psychotherapy for PTSD, once it's legal, also in about two years, it's gonna cost 12 to $15,000. That'll include three different journeys with the preps and integrations. And until insurance gets on board, it won't be that accessible. And so it's been this big problem of, well, how about the people with the worst traumas like in poverty situations or minorities and so me and a group of people got together and created a free online training a four-hour training to help people just sit for each other you know and, and you could people can find that at silohealth.co p-s-i-l-o co. it's a group of other people working in the medical field me because it, at least to give people the sense that they could just sit with our others within their community and so that's at the lowest level is just finding a sitter and then from there, you can find mm. therapists and guides and it just tends to, the more networked and the more wealth you have, you'll be able to deal with more like high, you know, high level, more intelligent individuals, just like great therapists cost more money. But those at the beginning of the practice are probably more widespread and easier to access.
2: So you, you have many journeys yourself, yourself, you said 100. What about sitting sessions? Like how many people have you sat for and what do you get from sitting for people? What comes to you from doing that?
0: I've sat for a lot of people. And that's not a number right now I could put out there. You know, I think for if people sit on my question the answer of why I said that, I think they'll understand why I can't. I've gotten so much. It's been so, 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 so healing. I for example, I love art, you know, visionary art, music. And it's almost there's such an aesthetic beauty to seeing somebody else, to see people really break through to themselves, to their lives. And it's um for example I have ADD, right? So A D D there's a craving for novelty and each journey is so different. And I love new challenges and new situations. And so people tend to like break through and there's an intensity to it. They might go into the deepest traumas or have the highest ecstasies or the greatest revelations. And for me, it's, it's it's there's an excitement to it, you know. And I also have a deep sense of empathy where I can sit with them and move with them through any emotion. At the end of the day, seeing something so meaningful and beautiful, again, sometimes, many times it's been the most important moment in many people's lives you know, I think to myself, what else could I have done that day that would have been more meaningful? You know, like it's fucking beautiful. It's it's healing to see other people heal. That's really cool.
2: I don't know. What, what are, what would be the qualifications of a good sitter? And yeah. you know, when you've spoken to, let's say other people about it, about their experiences, are you any sitters experiences that, that helped you be better at it or yeah. things that they told you that were surprising again or interesting? Yeah, no,
0: so I think I'm, Either gone through or helped or taught in five to six different psychedelic psychotherapy trainings, I've been able to see a lot, right? And I've coming with quite a background. And so, you know, people might see my credentials, and I'm like that. I that's that wouldn't be the standard to look for because, you know, I don't know anybody else that's actually done that much. Um, There's other amazing individuals, and so it's one of those things. The longer they've been working and having a profession, the more trustable they are. You know, the therapist has been a therapist for twenty years. They probably have more depth and more experience. I would ask them their history of psychedelic use, because it's unlike any other experience. It's not fight talk therapy. It's very experiential and visionary and somatic and energetic. It's quite intense, and so I would like them to have a grounding and points of references for this their ethics matter huge. So safety is first and foremost, right? Like you need to feel safe around this person. Are they going to cross sexual boundaries? Are they wanting to take advantage of you? You're, people are going to be in a very vulnerable state. It's highly vulnerable. You can mm. barely move, right? And you're, all your psychological defenses come down. Your heart is really open out there. And the more trusting you can feel and the safer you feel, the more you can surrender. So first and foremost, it's really a sense of do you feel you can trust this person? If you can trust this person, you can really open up. If they feel unsafe, you're gonna your defenses are going to be there, and you're not going to be able to really move forward, and it could be a very uncomfortable experience.
2: Um, after someone sits and you know they do a session, does the person feel embarrassed when they come down from it? You know, like oh my god, I can't believe I said that or did that. <laughs> I feel stupid.
0: Once in a while, it's all, it always turns out great. Uh, but yeah, we have. You know, this everyday ego structure that has to have some kind of control, including keeping some level of poise and our sense of self-image and we're used to acting certain ways. And when people come in, I expect them to fall apart, like the entire structure to dissolve and turn into a puddle and probably turn into a baby. Because there's so much of the wounds are in that baby child itself. They're early in life. And so, I mean, I've seen so many people throw up and then people get embarrassed about throwing up. You know, or I see people cry and they, they start apologizing for crying. I'm like, this is exactly why you're here. You know, I've seen a lot of people or they, they felt they talked too much and they get embarrassed. It's little things. And shame comes up. There's like what you you know, Brene Brown, the, the shame researcher would say there's a vulnerability hangover. They were really vulnerable more than they're used to. And then they look back and they feel shame. But ultimately, that's what's healing is being able to be seen in that state and still loved and accepted. Allows them to actually become more of themselves and feel safer in a deeper level. Okay. That
2: makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Um, you said the field's been changing like crazy the past three years. Uh, what are some of the recent changes you've seen and are they good or bad
0: ones? It's all around. For me, it's overall good. You know, again, education is getting so much. There's the best sellers now on psychedelics. The documentaries, you know, How to Change Your Mind for Michael Pollan, both his book and Netflix has been huge. Fantastic Fungi for Paul Stamets, and The documentary has just gotten all around. Uh, we're going to have the largest psychedelics uh, conference ever taking place in June in Denver, uh, put on by MAPS, who's been one of the main researchers for 30 years. It'll be about 10,000 people. And so the field and interest is growing exponentially. There's a lot of money coming into the field, a lot of venture capitalists, a lot of people starting businesses. And so if some people have been in this for a long time that are really trying to be careful and and create a really good culture with high ethics and high values, Values that have been inspired by these psychedelic states, a sense of unity, oneness, taking care of the planet, taking care of other cultures, making good economic system. And then you also have people that are haven't quite done that level of work and they're coming from quite a capitalistic mind state, which could be more focused on just personal gain and extraction, right? It's not balanced. It's like, yes, we want you to have personal gain, but we also want you to be of service. Right. So you're gonna have a lot of people coming in. There's a lot of companies trying to patent, trying to patent whatever they can you know, there's been several companies trying to patent everything, everything they can around psilocybin. And psilocybin's been naturally growing for about, it seems like 70 million years. It's available all across the world. And so they're trying to patent every little thing of like, what, what if we serve the psilocybin this way? Wait, can we patent this? So that they get rights to something. But what that does is it restricts other people from doing things. And so there's a lot of fight back. So as long, anytime there's somewhere you can make money, there's going to be some level of greed coming in, but we're all becoming more conscious of that. That's going to be the hardest thing. And There's different perspectives around laws, around what specific ways laws could change or should be changing around this. Overall, it's all been very positive, but we're still meeting so much the challenges from living in this this society we presently live in.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, very good. So, one last question. I mean, have interviewed a number of people on, you know, wild plants and foraging and things like that, and it seems weird. I I asked them, you know, around the world, there seem to be plants nearby to human populations that help with pain that help with other ailments, that, you know, like you said, psilocybin. Why do you think that psilocybin is present wherever people are present? Why do you think that you know, other medicinal plants are present just so often to be near people all over the world?
0: Yeah, no, that's true. You know, I spent just an entire ch- chapter of my book kind of addressing that. Um, chapter three, people want to look at it because I got really focused on how does this possibly exist? How does a substance that take, that grows in nature give high-level complex meaningful experiences that can be so healing this is not random it creates a hyper-connected brain state with almost no biotoxicity fits into the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor better than serotonin itself this is not random it's highly intelligent so then I had to look at well what's the history of this organism right and so there's three big kingdoms of life there's the the plant kingdom the fungi kingdom and the animal kingdom the fungi kingdom has been here for about 2.5 billion years animal kingdom about 500 million so it's about five times older it created the very soil for plants to develop it was the first root systems right fungi connects all the root systems of plants and plants in the environment it sends electrical impulses breaks down matter to 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 give it nourishment and so we've always have been living and evolving on top of this living web our entire history And as Paul Stamets points out, the mycologist, you know, it kind of regulates the entire ecosystem. And so out of this large living underground net comes to psilocybin mushrooms, easy to spot and grab, you know, that that fits it to ourselves so well, gives us a higher state of awareness. And so it's like came to me reading um, Richard Doyle's book. He's a Pennsylvania University State professor. And he read thousands of trip reports for this book of Barwin's Pharmacy, Sex, Plants, and Evolution of the Noosphere. And out of all these reports, what he found was a signature psychedelic insight is that the participant realizes they're part of a vast interconnected living system, and they should be re ecodelics. So now we see that there are substances across the planet that bring ecological awareness. What makes sense is that the environment's trying to keep balance, the same way your body's trying to create a state of homeostasis through hormones and other compounds and other electrical impulses, the environment's trying to do the same thing. This is kind of the thing with like Gaia theory that the atmosphere is trying to regulate itself through gases. So we're, we've been evolving. And this has been happening for billions of years. The ecosystem's always trying to regulate. What we're seeing now is that we've evolved within a regulating, evolving ecosystem. And there's it compounds within the environment that are there to kind of regulate consciousness. You know, our body depends on plants for oxygen, for food. And I would say, maybe even our minds and our spirits and our consciousness itself develop depends on plants and fungi to regulate itself and to be more whole and in balance with ourselves society and the
2: planet well actually, where can people start to learn more about psilocybin and you know, find a place to go to get healing if they need all do they start
0: yeah humbly like my book's been the most comprehensive on this subject because i read like every other book almost on it and so that's the psilocybin connection you know, there's a reference over 400 different books in it. So it's, it's quite extensive and goes through everything around psilocybin. If people are into reading, you know, I think Michael Pollan did a great job with his bestseller, How to Change Your Mind. You know, it was a nice coincidence a couple weeks ago, um, the New York Times recommended both my book and his book as the only the main, only ones that they recommended for looking deeper into psilocybin. There's amazing documentaries out right now. Pretty much it's, it's becoming so popular. As soon as you just get online, put psilocybin, it's like nonstop. You know, and people are making videos every day on it right now. If you want to cultivate, you know, my friend Seth uh, has this website, Fungi.com, for like a hundred bucks. There's a, like a five hour workshop teaching you how to grow mushrooms so that you can do it yourself and make, get really safe. And there's a psychedelic society probably in every major city. Let's put a psychedelic society in your what town. Mean? Yeah. So there's ways to get community and all these places have nonstop talks on it. And so... The community aspect's amazing. You know, just keep connecting with more people that are interested in the subject and having more conversations around it.
2: Okay. Well, actually, this brings to mind one last question, if that's okay. Um, just if you have uh, several people that are highly experienced with psilocybin um, and they all dose at the same time, is there any group kind of dynamic that you've been able to create or other people you've seen create that, I don't know, you know, what, what can you do if you have, again, a bunch of very experienced practitioners that all do it at the same time? What can they do? What can they accomplish?
0: You know, I mean, I've been able to have those experiences. There was a highly trained group of us that went to Oaxaca around 18 of us, I think, you know, and, and journeyed by itself. It's good. It's great. But we're also really deep into our own journeys. But something that's been amazing for all group dynamics that we found right away doing this in Jamaica is there's a huge sense of healing that can happen doing it in a group. And first, I want to preface, if you have a high level of trauma, the one-to-one work is really important because somebody's there to really work with you on a personal level with trauma. With the group work, we almost all have some kind of trauma around belonging. We have some kind of trauma around our family. And in the state that our boundaries dissolve all together in a large group, it creates a sense of cohesion at times and of deep meaningfulness. And so when we've led these retreats in Jamaica, we do about 12 people at a time. It becomes so apparent that aside from the psilocybin, The next big medicine was feeling connected to a part of a group. And we've seen people stay in contact with each other as part of these cohorts for years, right? Because now you feel a sense of tribalness, of community. Your heart's finally open. You might have felt closed down from other people for years. Now the heart's open at the same time other people is. Now you really deeply connect, And that brings a great sense of confidence and security and inspiration. So I think anything is possible. You know, they've done this work with scientists and architects, I think in the 60s with LSD, and part of the thing was you had to be stuck on a engineering or strategic intellectual problem for 18 months to be able to qualify then they give them LSD and within 24 hours 90% of this group and it's about 60 different people were able to solve the problems right all across and, the field so, no it's it could just, it's probably the biggest resource for humanity when it comes to creativity for ethical awareness for expansion of almost anything
2: you know so maybe, I you, you mean someone so much to make a uh, think tank pretty cool huge huge i it's such
0: one of the biggest i have an entire chapter on creativity in the book too it's it's i think it's our biggest untapped resource it's just so bad that it's been illegal and kind of pushed away um because once we change our consciousness everything changes you know all our capabilities the way they see the world the way we show up who we think we are and so i think a much of the technical problems that we have or including the i think the development of ai for example is going to be a highly influenced And I mean, we're already, you know, Silicon Valley, they're using a lot of psychedelics already. but I think as this becomes more widespread and accessible, I think the level of novelty through technology and philosophy, through politics, through all across the world is going to rise up incredibly.
2: Excellent. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for all you do. It's been a really cool call. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Richard.
0: It's been an honor to hear with you and uh, grateful for everybody that showed up to listen. Happy to be here doing this.
1: If you like this podcast,